This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Okay, today I'm going to talk about comets and NASA's Stardust mission, and we're going to take a look at what's going on in our solar system's freezer. And as, um, as Dick said, my name is Hope Ishii. I'm a research scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. I'm actually a, a material scientist, and right now I'm studying extraterrestrial materials. And um, working with me is Tom Scheffler. He's a physics teacher at Granada High School who um, also teaches astronomy. So let me start out by asking you all, how many of you guys have actually really seen a comet? And I don't mean on, not on television, not on the internet. I know you can see anything on the internet. Really seen a comet with your own two eyes. Hands up. All right, you guys are really experienced. We're going to have no problems today. Well, actually, about a couple months ago, um, if you went outside near sunset or sunrise, you could have seen this in the Bay Area. This is, the, um, this is Comet McNaught. See this little guy here with its tail? And this is the view from Berkeley. Um, you can see the Golden Gate Bridge here. In fact, the view is even better from the other side of the world in the southern hemisphere. This is the view from, um, from New Zealand in Queenstown. See this beautiful tail on this comet? There's um, something else going on in this picture. Can anybody tell me what this big old mass of stars is here? Sh shout it out. Oh, one more time. That's right. Okay, one of you young ladies up there. Prize. Who's got... Oh, there we go. Great. Good job. There's two more things going on here. There's big clusters of... of oh, my mic is a little too low. That's my problem. Let's try that. Two more big clusters of scar, stars up here called the Magellanic... Um, the small and the large Magellanic Cloud. And then there's a little streak here. This is a meteor that happened to be going through the atmosphere during the exposure for this picture. So that's pretty cool. But now, imagine that you lived 500 years ago, I mean, practically the Dark Ages, right? If you went outside on a clear night, what, what were the normal objects that you would see in the sky? Stars? The moon? Did I, did I hear planets? Yeah, planets, that's right. The moon, stars, and planets, like Venus. Venus is very bright. Um, yeah, the, actually, that's a good one, too. How are comets different from, from these kinds of objects? Come on, you guys. You just saw one. Tails. Who said tails up here? Good job. Tails. There's one other way in which comets are different from the moon that you see every night and the stars that you see every night. Say that again. Yes, that's true. But if you didn't know, what if they, they actually, they, it's really hard to know when you're going to see them, right? They just kind of show up. So it's really hard to predict the timing of when, when a comet's going to show up. In fact, Comet Haley um, comes around into um, the Earth's neighborhood about every 76 years. That's a short period comet. And Haley, actually, people have known about for a while now. But think of a comet like Hale Bopp. Hale-Bopp comes around every 2,500 years. So you have to you know, live a really long time to see that thing twice in your lifetime. So because they were, they were really unexpected, um, in the old days, historically, people were afraid of comets. They were feared. 
And so when you saw a comet in the sky back then, it meant that your crops were going to fail or there was going to be war or pestilence. In this case, um, there's a, an earthquake. And what's going on in the sky? Comet, right? The great comet of 1556, they, they think, actually caused this earthquake. Well, we're a lot smarter today, right? We know that comets don't cause earthquakes, right? Yeah? Well, actually, it's amazing the things that people will think. Um, we still have modern comet hysteria. It, when Hale-Bopp came in 1999, this was um, only 10 years ago, right? Not, not that long ago. It was really close to Y2K, the year 2000. And everyone was afraid of the end of the world. You know, it's going to be, um, the, the world's going to end. In fact, the big fear was because Hale-Bopp was such a bright comet, people thought that it was actually coming to Earth, that it was com actually coming at us. It was going to hit Earth and kill us all. And sadly, there was, a, there was a cult called the Heaven's Gate cult that actually committed suicide. They wanted to leave their earthly bodies to follow Comet Hale-Bopp across the sky. Well, the truth is that even when Hale-Bopp was closest to the Earth, it was still farther away than the sun is normally. The sun's usually about 90 million miles away, and Hale-Bopp is 120, was, when it was closest to the Earth, was 120 million miles away. So that was a pretty unfounded fear. Okay, so part of our job today is to take you guys from saying, oh no, the sky is falling, the world is going to end, and we're going to give you knowledge so that when you see a comet in the sky, you look at it the same way you would a, a great fireworks display, right? This is a great light show that nature's putting on for you. And you say, ooh, ah, wow, right? sounds of amazement. Okay, so whenever you guys see a comet in today's presentation, I want to hear some sounds of amazement. Are you ready? Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, you guys are eminently trainable. Good job. Okay, actually, there's three things going on here. This is a picture that was taken also just one month ago. This was taken in Australia on the beach. You see these guys are on the beach, and it's like summer there, even though it's winter here. And here's a man-made light display, the fireworks. So everybody's gathered to watch the fireworks, but they got two other free shows, too. On the far side is one of nature's light shows, this lightning storm coming in off the ocean. And do you guys see the comet? Yeah, yeah right in the middle. That's Comet McNaught, the same one that we saw in the, in the previous two comet pictures. Pretty cool, huh? Talk about timing. Okay, so today we're going to increase your knowledge. You're going to learn about three basic comet ingredients, um, two kinds of comet tails, we're going to talk about where comets formed and how they can act as time capsules. And then I'm going to tell you about um, NASA's Stardust mission, which actually went to a comet, and how it captured comet dust and brought it back to Earth, and then what's getting researchers like myself really excited and fired up today. OK. So first of all, let's look at how comets size up. Who knows what that big blue and white ball is in the middle of the screen? Earth, okay, you, got, you all know where you live. This is good, this is a good start. So the Earth has a diameter of about 7,900 miles, and um, it has a moon um, with the name Moon, and the moon is about a quarter the size of the Earth at 2,160 miles. And then if we go out away from um, the sun, 40 times the distance that it is to the Earth, we get to um, a poor little guy that used to be a planet and recently got downgraded and its name is Pluto. And Pluto is only 1,430 miles in diameter. 
And Pluto also has an, a moon named um, Charon or Charon after the Greek. And it's 730 miles in diameter. And oh my goodness. OK, I know I put a comet nucleus on here somewhere. Can anybody see it? That's probably where it should be, because I can't see it. But I actually put it down in the bottom corner. <laughs> That's where it is. It's, it's um, about a half to 10 miles in diameter is a typical comet nucleus. Um, so it's pretty darn small compared to the Earth. I think that's actually a, a, a flaw in my, my display. <clears throat> so I put a circle around where, where you should see it, if you could see it, OK? And if you compared it to an object on Earth, it's, it's comparable in size to a mountain. So it, when you're the little guy standing at the bottom of the mountain, the comet's pretty big. But um, compared to the size of the Earth, it's actually a very small object. Now let's go and take a little look at some comet anatomy. So that nucleus I was telling you about is this little brown circle in the center here. And it's made up of three um, main components, ices, minerals, and organics. Now, the ices um, include water ice, good old H2O. It's about typically 80 to 90% water ice. And then the next biggest ice is carbon monoxide. Um, on Earth, that's a, that's a gas. But um, in the, at these cold temperatures, it's, it's frozen into a solid. And there's maybe 5 to 15% carbon monoxide. And then there's a bunch of other um, gases in there as well, uh, carbon dioxide, ammonia, um, methane. Um, who can tell me what frozen carbon dioxide is called? Dry. Who said dry ice over here? Dry. Prize. OK, good job. <laughs> All right, so then the second ingredient, minerals. Minerals is, uh, are, are commonly what you find in rocks and dust. If you went outside and picked up a handful of dirt, you'd have a handful of minerals. And then finally, organics. And, and this is in the form of carbon-rich Chon-type materials. Chon is carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. These are the basic um, elements that we find in life forms. So these are the three main ingredients of, of the nucleus of the comet. Now, when you actually see a comet in the sky, you're not really seeing the nucleus. That's too small and far away for you to see with, with the naked eye. What you're seeing is the coma. And the coma is basically an atmosphere that's formed from these ices when they sublime, when they go from the solid state into the, the vapor phase, they form an atmosphere, a very thin gas cloud around the nucleus of the comet. And then this cloud gets ionized by solar radiation. It gets electrons stripped off of it. And that forms a plasma. So we basically have a glowing plasma, giant cloud surrounding the nucleus. And this is what you're actually seeing with your eyes when you see a comet in the sky. For a bright comet, this can extend over 100,000 miles in diameter. That's, that's bigger than the distance between the Earth and the Sun. OK, so there's two other components to the comet. There's the ion tail, made up of the ionized gas. And then there's the dust tail, which is made up of dust that gets freed as these ices go into the vapor phase and form gas. So how, how do we know all of this if we've only just recently gone to a comet? Well, actually, most of this we've learned um, by telescope observations. We can actually analyze light and, and tell what's, what's creating the light. So let's focus a little bit more on these two tails, the ion tail and the dust tail. This is a little schematic um, that I made up of showing a comet orbiting the sun. Here's our little sun. He's very happy. And we've got the Earth here. And the Earth circles the sun at a distance of one astronomical unit. That's how an astronomical unit is defined. It's the distance between the Earth and the sun. Now, the comet nucleus goes circling along here. And as it gets closer to the sun, it starts to warm up. And gases start to be formed from these ices. 
And this starts happening at about seven astronomical units from the sun. Well, then we get two, two kinds of tails forming. Remember the ion tail and the dust tail? So the ion tail gets pushed away from the sun by solar wind, and so it makes a straight line away from the sun. No matter where the comet is in the orbit, it's pointing away from the sun. And it actually really does have this bluish color. You guys thought I was just trying to be artistic here, but it really is kind of bluish because carbon monoxide ions scatter blue light more effectively than other colors. The dust tail also gets pushed away from the sun, but because it's heavier, it takes longer to accelerate, and so it kind of lags behind a little bit, and it forms a, more of a curved tail that curves back a little bit towards the direction of the comet orbit, but still pointing away from the sun. So I actually overlaid um, another picture of a comet on this so you can see that I'm, I'm, I'm not actually pulling your leg. It's real. So this is Hale-Bopp, and you see this blue ion tail pointing directly away from the sun, and here's the dust tail curving just a little bit behind. Okay, so now we're going to go ahead and actually make a comet. Good morning. All righty. I'd like to introduce uh, Raj. This is my uh, student who's going to be helping me out. What we're going to do is we're actually going to make a comet because when you consider everything that a comet is made of, most of the uh, materials uh, are accessible. In fact, uh, the equipment I got for this lab, most of it can be uh, obtained at Safeway, including water. You can add uh, two cups of water. What we uh, did here lined a, uh, just an ordinary mixing bowl with a, a garbage bag. Then uh, you can have a dash of ammonia. There are uh, organic molecules, and organic simply means carbon-based uh, molecules, which we are going to uh, approximate with some corn syrup, uh, Betty Crocker brand specifically. Yum. And got some, uh, some dirt that we're just going to add here. Now we're uh, adding just a little bit of dirt uh, a comet's true composition is, is much higher percentage uh, minerals, dirt, and rocky materials. However, we want something that uh, is going to stick together, and uh, we don't want to add a realistic amount of dirt because then our, our comet's going to fall apart. So I prepared ahead of time. Now this uh, activity is a little bit more of a... Uh-oh, we have uh, solidified... Okay, there we go. The first uh, few attempts uh, I did to make a comet were a little iffy. Turns out this is much more of an art form than uh, one would have imagined. Uh, this is dry ice. I got this dry ice, it's again, just at Safeway. I uh, used an uh, ordinary hammer to uh, break it into uh, pieces, and then you want to get a nice fine powder. So that's where the mallet comes in. I find that uh, there's something strangely satisfying of pounding a piece of dry ice into powder with a mallet. I don't know if that says something about me or not. Uh, I found uh, when doing this, if you're going to err on one side, err on the side of having too much water relative to the dry ice. So I'm going to scoop a couple little uh, cupfuls, and Raj, going to go ahead and stir. Double, double toil and trouble. Except this is the opposite of uh, fire burn, although the cauldron is bubbling. 
if I could. So timing on this is kind of key too. Basically, uh, our goal here is to make a, a snowball. And one of the best snowballs are made, go ahead and pick that up, or when you have a nice wet, wet snow, you pack it in. Now, I don't know if you can see this, but uh, there's a couple things going on. There's a little water that was bubbling out of the top there. The water's not boiling. What's happening is the uh, carbon dioxide, the dry ice, uh, wants to sublime. It's going right from the solid state to the gaseous state, and if there's water in the way, it's going to push that water out of the way and making it bubble. By the way, I got to say, this feels really weird. Have a, uh, a bubbling uh, snowball in a garbage bag between my hands. And by the way, this can be a little messy, so you don't want to do this on your uh, expensive tablecloths from, from Tiffany's. And here we have, have a comet. So what we have here is, uh, thank you. What we have here is something pretty darn similar to uh, what orbits the sun and makes these beautiful tails. And it's, it's kind of an ugly looking snowball right now. <laughs> and uh, notice, I just used a tiny, tiny little bit of dirt. And uh, that made this uh, snowball, you know, I think of snowballs, a pristine, white, shiny, uh, object, just a little bit of dirt was enough to make this very dark. So a comet nucleus, even though comets are made primarily of ices, a comet nucleus is actually pretty dark. So I'll go ahead and set this, ooh, <laughs> it's stuck. So I want to show you a couple of uh, earlier attempts, show you what, uh, what this can do if you let it uh, stick around. So notice, uh, I notice a few things actually. Uh, there's uh, the water is continuing to bubble because the uh, CO2 underneath it is subliming and we're getting uh, uh, kind of little jets of uh, CO2 coming off. Now if you uh, just let this sit around, this is a comet made about a week ago. Well, this is one we made this morning. This was our uh, practice run this morning. Uh, notice uh, the ice crystals that have formed on the surface. These have, is, is actually uh, water vapor from the air that is condensed into ice on the uh, surface of the object. So here's a comet that we made about a week ago. All the uh, dry ice is sublimed away, so this is uh, just water ice along with the ammonia and the dirt and uh, corn syrup. But notice it's, it's pitted and it has holes in it. And these holes are very similar, and a cat here, Uh, notice these holes are not because of uh, something hitting the object, it's because what, as the uh, carbon dioxide sublimed away, it made little jets and poked little holes through the ice in order to escape. Uh, this is one of the things, for example, that uh, the movie, how many of you have seen the movie Deep Impact? Oh, That's come the on. one uh, where Frodo discovers a comet. Uh, there's a scene in the movie where uh, an astronaut is on the surface of the comet and uh, an outgassing actually uh, occurs beneath his feet and blows him in, into space. And that's uh, not an entirely unrealistic uh, portrayal of what can happen at a comet surface. So I'll go ahead and uh, leave both of these out for you to see. Thanks again to uh, my partner.
All right, great. So you guys should come up afterwards and take a look and see how these, these things change. You can hear, you can hear this um, still bubbling away. So I'm going to go on and tell you a little bit more about why we actually study comets. I mean, why should you guys really care, right? Well, let me tell you. It turns out that all of the starting ingredients for our solar system, for, for planet Earth, for the state of California, for Pleasanton, for, the, for this amateur theater, and for you guys and me, it all came from gas and dust that was ejected by other stars during their lifetimes. Pretty wacky, huh? Actually, we're, we are actually all part of a, a stellar recycling program, um, including us. So the, the very iron that's in your hemoglobin, in your blood, that's carrying oxygen up to your brain so that you can listen to me and hear, hear this talk, was formed in another star. Okay, wrap your head around that one. So this object is called um, NGC 2440, um, which I think it should be called the eyeball because it looks like an eye to me. But this is a dying star. It's kind of at the end of its lifetime. Um, this is a, a white dwarf stage of a star. And the star itself is just this tiny little white dot in the middle of the iris. And all this other material that you see kind of blowing around like an explosion um, is gas and dust. And our own star will eventually go through a phase like this, but you guys don't have to lose any sleep over it because it's not going to be for like another five billion years or so. And so all, all this gas and dust continues to expand out into space. And this is where we get to the sort of the reused part of the recycling program, right? So we reuse this material to make something new. This is the process of solar system formation. We start out with a, an interstellar cloud that's got gas and dust in it. And somewhere in that cloud, it gets a little bit denser, and um, there, it, we get enough material in a close enough space that we start getting gravity, and it collapses on itself. And we can form a, um, what's called a solar, ne solar nebula. Nebula just means cloud. And inside is a protosun, which is a, a baby star, a young sun. For our solar system, this happened about 4.6 billion years ago. Write that down. So 4.6 billion years ago is when our solar system um, got started. And because this cloud had some, um, some rotation to it when it started, angular momentum is conserved, and it continues rotating, and it actually tends to flatten out into a, a spinning disk. And the densities get higher of all of this material, and eventually things start hitting each other and sticking together, and we get the formation of planets, and we get asteroids, which are believed to be, the asteroid belt is believed to be a failed planet that didn't quite stick together. And far away um, from the sun, in the outer reaches of the solar system, we get comets. So I'm going to take you in, and we're going to look a little bit closer at this, at this young solar nebula to see um, the, the, plant, the comet forming region. So this is a cross section through the solar nebula. Here's our young sun in the middle. Um, and he's very hot. It's very hot by the sun. And as we go out along the, the disk away from the sun, it gets cooler and cooler. And eventually, it gets really, really cold. So if I took a, an ice cube um, from out here in this really cold region, and somehow I magically transported it in next to the sun, what's it going to do? Uh, this young lady here. It's going to do more than melt. What, what's going to happen? More than, more than melt. It's really, really hot there. Let's get somebody up here. Evaporate. Evaporate. Very good. It's, it's going to completely vaporize. So um, there is, a, there is a, a region called the frost line, where if you go beyond that, some, something becomes a solid. But if you're on the inside, it would be a gas. <clears throat> and so really close to the sun, what we mostly are forming is rocky bodies. 
And if we go um, far away from the sun, what, what do you think you add in? We have rock and ice, rock and ice. So we have rock ice bodies, and that's what a comet is. We, we actually just made one, um, basically dirt and, and ice and, um, and a little organics. Okay, so one of the key things about comets is that they formed way the heck out here, and they've lived their lives way out here. They've been very far from the sun, so they've never been baked or boiled or fried by being close to the sun. They're basically really, really good um, deep freezes. This is, a, this is a freezer system for our solar system. Good storage. So because of that, comets actually hold all of the starting ingredients for our planets. All the materials that were, that, from which our planet Earth was formed um, should be in, inside comets, including some stardust dust that came from other stars that hasn't been completely heated and, and cooked and processed and re, you know, um, reformed by the sun. So this is pretty exciting. This means that comets act as frozen time capsules and that by studying comets, we can actually learn about, um, we're, we're basically studying our solar system at its beginning. So here's another um, reason for you to be interested in comets. This is a, a picture of Meteor Crater in Arizona. It's about a mile in diameter and it was formed when a, a big, um, object came right through our atmosphere and smacked into the Earth and left this big hole. So today, the Earth's atmosphere actually protects us from all but the smallest and the biggest impacts. <clears throat> but the early Earth didn't have much of an atmosphere, and it was bombarded a lot by comets and by asteroids. It, it, it had the heck bombarded out of it. Um, if you look at the moon, the moon doesn't have an atmosphere, and you see that it's completely pockmarked and covered with craters. Uh, and that's something like what the early Earth would have been exposed to. So there's actually a very famous, um, very, very famous, very, very big crater called the Chicxulub Crater off the um, Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. And um, there's no debate that this crater was formed by a really, really big impactor, a really big object that came in uh, and smacked the Earth. But right now, there's a really hot scientific debate about whether it actually caused the mass extinction of the dinosaurs about 65 million years ago. So, oh, I went too fast. <laughs> so I said that the early Earth was, um, was bombarded by comets. And that means that it was also bombarded by, by the comet ingredients. Do you guys remember what the three basic comet ingredients are? Water, very good, ices, yep. That's good, but that's actually part of the ISIS. Can you give me something else, um, a little bit? Uh, minerals, like minerals, rocky, okay. And let's get somebody over here, this young lady in blue. Organics, okay, so two of those things are really interesting, water and organics. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Those are the building blocks that scientists believe um, life formed from. So water and organics might have come from comet bombardment. And this is the second reason why we're really interested in studying comets, because comets actually delivered, um, may have actually delivered the basis for life to the early Earth. All right, so now let's go on to talk about the, the spacey stuff. <laughs> this is, um, I'm going to tell you about the Stardust mission. This is a NASA mission to a comet. And down here is a, an artist's drawing of the spacecraft going through the coma of this comet, Vilt 2. Um, this, these are solar panels. It was a solar-powered mission, and um, this is a the sample return capsule is on the end. This is the the object that actually got returned to us, and it has extended from it a um, a sample collector. Um, and I'm going to talk more about that. So the reason this mission was really important is because this is the first time that we've actually been able to have 
um, comet material on Earth to study with all of our super high-powered, high-tech, state-of-the-art, Earth-based instruments. Um, we've been able to look at comets from afar, but to be able to have a sample on Earth means we can study it in a lot more detail. So this is a NASA Discovery class mission. It actually costs about um, $260 million, which um, sounds like a whole lot of money, and I would love to have just a little fraction of that. But it's actually very cheap for a, for a, a space mission. This is also the first time that the US has brought back a solid sample since we brought back the moon rocks in the 1970s. So this is, this is um, very exciting for, for NASA. And then we have a couple of records. The spacecraft traveled um, a total distance of 3 billion miles in, in actually getting to the comet and bringing, bringing dust back. That, that was a record. And it also traveled a record distance away from the Earth of 2.72 astronomical units, 2.72 AU. Okay, so the Stardust launch um, happened in 1999, about let's say eight years ago now, and um, it was launched by a Delta II um, launch vehicle, this rocket here, with about 200,000 pounds of thrust. And I have a little video of the launch. Um, let's see if we can get this eight, to play. Seven, six, green board all the way across. Four, three, two. We have main engine start. Zero and liftoff of the Stardust spacecraft returning a time capsule with the elements of the formation of our solar system. So one of my colleagues was actually at the launch and he said that it was so loud and so it was just so much energy that he could actually feel his rib cage um, vibrating like a subwoofer. It was, it was really powerful. So then we fast forward about five years, and um, we get to the, the spacecraft has finally actually reached the comet. The comet we were going for was the comet Vilt-2. It was named after its um, discoverer. And uh, this is actually a really lucky comet. And the reason it was lucky is that in uh, about 1974, it got bumped out of an orbit um, being really far from the sun in the outer reaches of the solar system by Jupiter's gravity into an orbit that's close to the sun, actually running between um, Mars and Jupiter. Jupiter is this yellow curve and Mars is the red one. That means that it was close enough for us to be able to get to with a solar-powered spacecraft. So this is the position of the comet at the time of the intercept in 2004. Here's the comet. Actually, there's a little tail on there, which is pretty hard to see. And then here's the Earth, this little blue dot. The, that distance is 1.86 astronomical units. and um, because Vilt-2 was only bumped into the intersolar system in the early 70s, it had only circled the sun about five times when the, um, when the spacecraft collected comet dust. And so the comet dust that we're getting is very fresh. It hasn't been cooked much. This is a picture that was taken by the onboard camera of the comet nucleus. And it's about three miles in diameter. And you can see some of these, um, these features, sublimation features on the surface of this comet. The, the picture in the background is actually a long exposure photograph that was taken so that you can see some of these jets. These are jets of material coming off the comet, gas and dust being, being blown away. Now, the, the spacecraft itself traveled within 150 miles of the nucleus. That sounds like a really long distance, right? I mean, that, that's a long drive if you hop in your car and, and, and take a drive. But for this um, mission, it was actually a very risky, very dangerous thing to do because even just a, a little centimeter-sized rock um, could have taken out something critical on the spacecraft and the, um, the samples would never have gotten back to us. You have to remember that, um, that the, the comet and the comet dust is traveling at a speed 
of about 13,700 miles per hour relative to the spacecraft. So at those speeds, that's pretty close. That's like getting in your car uh, and driving up to San Francisco at 65 miles an hour, and suddenly some maniac passes you going 200 times faster. You don't really want to be very close to that guy. Okay, so to, to give you a, another idea, I think most of you have, have probably seen this picture of a bullet being fired right through an apple. So the comet dust is actually going at six times faster the speed of a bullet. Six times the speed of a bullet. So you gotta ask, well, how are you actually really gonna catch this stuff? I mean, that's, that's pretty fast, right? That bullet, that apple didn't stop the bullet. <laughs> okay, so the key here is um, a material called aerogel. This is um, a really unique material. It's an ultra-low density glass foam. So it's basically made out of the same kind of things that your window windows are made out of, but it's the world's lightest solid. How do they do that, right? This is the collector that I'm showing you here, um, the actual sample collector. It's an aluminum frame, and it's filled with little tiles of aerogel. So the, um, this material is extremely strong. This is a picture of a brick on top of a little tile of aerogel. It's pretty transparent, and I'm gonna show you later, I'm gonna make, give you a little demonstration to show you that. And it's 99.8% empty space. So that's why it's so light. It's, um, it's, we've basically taken window glass and blown it full of, um, of holes, more or less. The aerogel that was used for this mission had a density of about five milligrams per milliliter. And to give you an idea of what that means, if I had two gallons of aerogel that weighs about as much as an egg. And the whole point of using a material like aerogel is basically so that we can capture the dust particles gradually. We slow them down um, much more gradually than if we smack them right into something um, very, very hard. So um, let me see if I can move over here and give you guys a little bit of a look at some aerogel. These are samples that were actually prepared at um, the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Um, the lab was involved in, in um, developing and passing on the, um, the process of making aerogel for the Stardust mission. And these are some beautiful, really, really big samples that were prepared for, um, for display. Now, for the Stardust mission, the tiles that were actually used are only about um, you know, an inch and a half in length. And one of the reasons for that is that there was a fear that if we did get a couple of big rocks coming off that comet, if we had a tile this size, about eight inches across, we could take out the entire tile with one big rock. So by using a lot of smaller tiles, there's kind of a safety there that we wouldn't lose everything. Okay, so I've got um, several different um, pieces of aerogel with different shapes and sizes, and I'm just gonna shine some laser light through it to give you guys a sense of like um, how transparent this material is. And you can see it's, it's, it's been called um, liquid smoke before, and, and you can kind of get a feeling for why you might, liquid smoke, excuse me, it's been called solid smoke you can get a feeling for why that would be. It's very stiff, very light material, um, and although it's very strong and actually very insulating, um, it's still very brittle, and if you, um, if you uh, handle it a little bit too roughly, it will actually break just like a glass. So can we go ahead and get the lights on so everybody can kind of get a, a picture of them? Um, so here you go with, um, you can kind of see this transparent material. I've put black behind it to make it a little bit more visible. If you want to come up afterwards and take a look, you're welcome to come and, and, and get a closer look at this. It's, it's pretty cool stuff. Okay. 
So Stardust actually came back um, about two years after the intercept, after it captured comet dust and aerogel. And um, the, the sample canister, that little front end of the spacecraft, um, was detached and spun its way into um, the Earth's atmosphere. It re-entered at a speed of 28,000 miles per hour. That's 70% faster than a typical shuttle re-entry. So it was coming in fast. And it safely landed in the, um, the Utah desert with pretty wild times um, in the early days uh, when, the, when this canister first came back. Um, I, I was really lucky. I was involved in um, coming up with a technique that was used for preparing some samples. And so I actually got to be in Houston at NASA when they did open the, the sample canister. And so I got to be among one of the, the first people to kind of get a good look at what, was really, what we really had brought back. And you can see this is a picture of one of these aerogel tiles I was telling you about in the collector. And you can see right there, there's a big, um, a big captured um, particle an impact track. This is an optical image of, of um, one of the early impact tracks. And there's also aluminum foil lining the sides of this um, uh, uh, holder. And so we had two surfaces that were collecting samples. Um, this is some aerogel. This is pictures from the side. You can see that particles came in, and they fractured and broke up. And we have little particle fragments at the end that we're studying now. And this is a crater that formed in when a particle hit some of the aluminum foil, and we can also study some of that material. But you can see right away the difference between capturing something gradually and capturing it all at once. Um, this was a much more violent capture process. So there were more than 150 researchers from all over the world that were involved in studying these samples when they first came back. And this, this work is still going on. So let me tell you um, right away um, that what we're looking at are very, very tiny samples. I just wanted to give you a feeling for this. So this is a picture of a human hair. It's magnified a lot. So a typical human hair, if you, if you pulled one out of your head and looked at it, it's a, well, you don't all have to do that. I don't want you to go bald. <laughs> but a typical human hair is about 100 microns in diameter. And I have here also a picture, an honest-to-goodness picture of a comet particle. This is one of the ones that we looked at. And it's 5 microns in diameter. These are talk we're talking really, really tiny objects here. In fact, the entire sample return, if you took all the dust particles together and, um, and weighed them, it weighs less than one milligram. To give you an idea of what that means, a typical small ant weighs maybe three milligrams. So if all of the started samples together probably weigh about as much as that ant's butt. Okay, it's a very small amount of material. So then you have to ask, well, how can you really study such tiny, teeny tiny little objects? Well, lucky for us, we've got a lot of really powerful tools um, that we can use to, to do this kind of um, research. We have x-rays that are um, available at synchrotron sources, like the Stanford Synchrotron Lab and Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Actually, there's a lot of synchrotrons around the country that were involved in this work. And using these really powerful x-rays, we can actually um, make maps of these impact tracks in aerogel to see where the chemicals have gone. Here's um, iron, nickel, and calcium in one of these impact tracks. We can also look at the track shape, and that tells us something about how the particle was held together and how it fragmented. And using X-ray tomography, we can, um, we can actually get a three-dimensional picture of what's, what's going on, how the particle is, um, has broken up on entering the aerogel. We can also use ion microscopes, and these allow us to actually look at isotopes. Now, you know that if you look at one type of atom, you always have the same number of protons, but you might have a different number of neutrons. And, and, and that, um, those are called different isotopes of the same atom, and they actually weigh a different amount. So by um, using ion microscopes, we can measure that. 
and we can get maps of, of isotopes. And you can see here, this is actually an honest-to-goodness little particle of um, genuine stardust that was found in the stardust sample. And this is the isotope map that shows that it has isotope ratios that are very different than, than isotope ratios that we would normally find on Earth. So this is, not, this, is, this is not from around here. We can also use electron microscopes, and this allows us to go down to really, really tiny sizes. With a transmission electron microscope, we can actually see um, all the way down to single columns of atoms. And we can use this to identify minerals. For example, this was olivine. We can also use electron microscopes to actually map out minerals. And this goofy, wacky colored little rock is actually called a calcium aluminum inclusion. Now, this is really weird because this is a type of rock that forms near the sun. But we found it in a comet. So I've just given you a little bit of a flavor of um, some of the science results and some of the research that's going on. And I wanted to just kind of put it together for you because I don't have time to give you everything. So what does it all mean? We have some stardust. We did find some stardust in the stardust samples. That was the namesake of the mission. But we also have some hot rocks. And by that I mean, I don't mean the candy, I mean rocks that had to have formed um, close to the sun, but we found them in the solar system's deep freeze in comets. So, you know, scientists used to kind of think that the solar system formed by this sort of a neat, nice, neat process of everything kind of um, collapsing and moving inward, and eventually we get high enough densities and things stick together. And I've kind of drawn this as this nice, you know, orderly process. Well, it was probably a lot more complex than that, a lot more turbulent, a lot more violent, a lot more crazy than most scientists originally thought. In fact, something a lot more wacky like this is probably more of what was going on. We have a, a lot of mixing of material from, from the inner part of the solar system that got sent out to the outer part of the solar system where it was incorporated in a comet. So a lot of, um, a lot of work still to be done and a lot of really exciting things going on. Okay, so if my calculations are correct, I think it's time for the appearance of the great comet of 2007. I want to hear some amazement and wonder now. <laughs> okay. Good job. Come on over. Come on over here. This is, this is actually our comet, Victoria. She did a great job. Um, now, I'm going to give you guys a pop quiz. Based on the direction that that comet's tail was pointing, where is the sun? Everybody point. Everybody, I want to see everybody point. <laughs> I, see, I see a couple of you guys were a little bit off. Yeah. So the comet's tail was pointing down that way. So the sun has to be in the opposite direction. The tails are always pointing away from the sun. You guys did a great, really great job. Um, if you have uh, questions or you want to see the comets uh, up close or you'd like to get a, a better look at the aerogel, then please come on forward. Um, otherwise, you guys have been wonderful. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.